Average length of haul keeps falling, maybe due to e-commerce. We talk about M&A in the transportation industry and um, how the new tax reform is affecting truck orders. I'm JP. And I'm Zach. And we're actually at the McLeod CFO Conference at the Westin in Nashville. Um, so just covering the conference and went to some morning meetings uh, for this bonus episode of What the Truck. Zach, um, let's talk about, uh, first of all, Bob Costello's presentation, sort of, you know, doing his thing, you know, the sort of macroeconomics, but also looking at some of the really uh, crucial KPIs for trucking. Um, what what kind of surprised you about that presentation? Well, well, one of the things that stood out to me uh, was the length of haul shortening. Uh, right. The e- e- e-commerce, he, he mentioned e-commerce, but really made a big impact in the uh Overall length of haul, uh, average. I think the average truck was under 500 miles now, which was the first time that's happened. In, right. In, yeah. In, it's been. Fa- it seems like it's been falling steadily ever since the Great Recession. Um, and just like l- just to dig a little bit deeper into why e-commerce would affect length of haul. I mean, where were, he he said something like, you know, um, in the, you know, 10 years ago, a big box retailer might have had you know, four, five, six major distribution centers in the United States, and now they have dozens. Yeah, I think, I think one of the, obviously, everybody's going to start thinking the Amazon effect that we've, we've talked about to, to ad nauseum. Right. Uh, this is like a different facet. Like, yeah. A lot of times we talk about consumer expectations with, um, you know, same, you know, two-day delivery or whatever, but this is sort of, you know, looking at it from the other side, right? Right, right. So, I mean, now we have some, also we have some sort of, uh, statistics on it so we now have like validation for this shortening of haul which affects the supply chain throughout i mean that's uh i mean when you're talking about going from a big box retailer to somebody who's clicking an order online now uh those those stores really take up a lot of space right um the whole logistics of just delivering to these big box stores is is uh kind of a thing unto itself uh, when you're going and bumping docks at, at these stores, they don't have a lot of warehouse space. Right. So they, they only want you to have so much truck. Like, I mean, that, that affects LTL. LTL is kind of, I mean, the retail box stores is kind of what they do. So when you're talking about this contra- contraction right. of supply chain networks, uh, it, it has huge impact throughout the industry. And, you know, we also talk about the Amazon effect, um, you know, obviously customer expectations about, you know, um, you know, fast service, uh, quick deliveries, uh, easy returns, extremely cheap shipping. But but I think we have to keep in mind when you talk about shortening delivery times, you're talking about shortening length of haul. Like you can't get one without the other, right? Right. No, exactly. And so when you're this this has a double-edged sword. It's it's actually good and bad at the same time. So you're gonna you're gonna reduce the amount of miles available for drivers to drive so that that's going to cut into their pay a little bit but it also kind of makes them more efficient so they're they're going to have these shorter length of hauls they're going to be home more right uh there's going to be more of a probably a regional distribution instead of an over the road which i think most drivers in the industry are preferential to yeah i mean it's when when i think about like you know uh trucking company earning reports and the sorts of things they talk about one of the things they talk about is you know miles per week 
which, you know, if you're trying to increase your miles per tractor per week, you're sort of swimming against the tide. But when you think about things like driver retention and, um, you know, the fact that lots of companies, uh, the irregular over the road segment of their business is, is like the least profitable, actually. Like if, if we can transition more to uh, regional, more to these sort of line haul moves. I mean, I think it, it could be better for the drivers. It could be more predictable for the carrier. I, I, uh, there's, there's, there's upside here. No, I, I, I think you're right. I think there's tremendous upside. I think what you're going to see is maybe a reduction in average miles per truck, but also an increased uh, load count. So you're probably going to have more loads right. uh, to kind of offset that. And, and it's going to be in a regionalized network, so it'll be far more efficient right, <laughs> and easier right, to right. manage. I mean, the over-the-road. Predictable. Exactly. Yeah. When, you're, when you're talking about freight networks in general, when you're talking about managing 800-mile hauls uh, and figuring out how to keep them in balance, right, you know, right, right, right. where's my next load going to be? Like 800 miles away, you're probably going to deadhead into something. When you have these regionalized networks, they turn into, naturally, they turn into these hub-and-spoke type setups where right. you have these regionalized distribution centers and they, they service a specific area. So your drivers are going to be more efficient at driving in those in those lanes as well. Right. That they know well and they know exactly what they're doing exactly. in and out. And they have the um, delivery times become more regular. It, you know, In theory, at least, shipper and customer performance at the dock could be rationalized in some way. Um, you know, so you know, some interesting takeaways from just that one metric from uh, you know Bob Costello, the chief economist of the ATA's uh, you know, presentation. Um, the other like cool panel that we saw was all about um, M&A, uh, mergers and acquisitions in the truckload space. Um, lots of things just from, you know, Larkin was on the panel, um, Renee Krug, the CFO of Global Trans, which is a big, um, you know, 3PL that just got bought by the Jordan Group. Uh, you know, someone from Dasky was there. Um, lots of different sort of perspectives on what this space looks like in you know the current um, kind of inflated environment, and um, it was interesting. It was interesting also to hear about the, the process. But let's just go into like, what, what do you think about what um, Larkin was saying about you know what the environment for um, these deals looks like right now? Yeah, I mean, I think one of the interesting things that he pointed out was the fact that asset light is still the most attractive to investors uh, in terms of. Uh, you know, the higher multiples uh, um, in terms of, you know, purchasing and, and you know, merging these, these companies. And so, he, the, so the idea is that you, you know, you buy, you know, a small asset light company for four or five times EBITDA and then you grow it, turn around and sell it for what, 10 to 14? Yeah, yeah. The idea is that you, you, you compile all these asset light uh, companies together. Smaller brokerages uh, typically are in that category. So they They'll put them together, and then once they get to the multiple they want, they turn around and sell it for multiples. And um, what that, what so, so asset, yeah, so that makes it. So why is asset light? Uh, why is it easier to do that than with you know an actual truckload carrier with you know several thousand tractors? Well, well, there's and that's a that's a good question. The uh, asset light doesn't doesn't have the exposure to the economy like like the heavy the heavy truck. Uh, carrier does. They, they have all this equipment and infrastructure that they have to support whether the economy or the freight's moving or not. So right, right. when you're talking about asset or light. What, what the, no matter what the rates are doing. Exactly. Or, yeah. Like the economy tanks, the, the trucking company is exposed uh, to you know equipment utilization problems. Uh, the broker 
doesn't have that. <laughs> right, because then what they, so it's interesting because, you know, since we've been doing this podcast, we've been in a tight capacity environment where the brokers are always, you know, begging to find trucks, right? But when the economy tanks and, you know, demand and this demand and supply go out of balance, the brokers aren't exposed. They just turn around and exactly. say, like, oh, now you need right. loads, right? Like exactly. They just, they're the broker, playing the other side. The broker just turns their head to the, to the right. other guy. Like, right now when the economy's great, the, the broker turns to the carrier and says, hey, man, what can I do for you? Right. So that's, <laughs> that's, it seems like, you know, that's an obvious reason why asset light companies yeah. enjoy much higher multiples. Exactly. Um, what other things uh, it was Larkin saying just about um, valuations right now and... You know what it's like on 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 the on the seller side. So one of the things he was uh, he really pointed to was the fact that the even the, the heavy asset guy is actually getting a better deal right now right. Um, in the market. It's it's contracting. Uh, the, it's the difference between the two has has contracted a little bit because the economy is doing so well. So the market is is ripe for M and A, but of course everybody everything's so expensive. So right. <laughs> The other, the other really interesting thing that I thought that he was really sort of like bringing his expertise to the table, you know, kind of giving advice to companies who might want to do a deal, um, you know, and, and they go in, they go to market or they go into this process, you know, thinking how the how it's going to go, thinking, you know, like trying to anticipate what would look good on their books. But he was sort of saying like, you know. Don't think that like okay, this quarter is a little soft for you for some reason. It'll be better next time, and you're put off a decision. He's like, don't wait to to um, make operational changes because of how you think it might affect the books. Yeah, and, no, and he your was, sort of proposition. He, he definitely he definitely hit on some solid points, uh, and and it, it speaks to integration and 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 things of that nature where. Basically, if you're ready to to make a sale, or you're going to sell, or you're going to purchase, like don't put off those those decisions till later. Um, like you want the company to run as efficiently as possible. Right. So if you if you need to add, yeah. you know, C-suite people, make changes, that sort of thing, you know, just run your business. Yeah, you need to run your business, and 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 that's one of the challenges that they were seeing actually is. You know, if they didn't make the proper preparation, like it really kind of actually hurt the uh, the sales process. So right, you could right, actually right. they could actually bail on the deal if you weren't organized enough to have your stuff in order. And so, like you stop making your day to day decisions the way that you you were doing it. That's the thing that puts you there in the first place. So why would you stop? You know, I, I thought just that the whole thing was so interesting. Like I didn't you know real you know. So I know like obviously investment banks help put together acquisitions and sales right but when he they went into like all of the different services that they offer in terms of like you know marketing like is because ultimately like if you're you know if you are trying to be acquired you have you're selling your company right and they they come up with all of that material they like create this narrative like a tell that the word story kept being used over and over again like it's all about a story because that's that's like sort of what, what makes sense to people um, how they can, you know, sort of uh, understand. One of the, yeah, one of the things that kind of stood out to me is that they, they really did, you know, it wasn't just a straight financial transaction. It was it was more about, like, what is this company's culture? Like, they spoke to that a lot. And, uh, what you know, they look first at the leadership team before they look at the financials even. And, and they, you know, it, it's one thing to have, like, standardized accounting practices and all that kind of stuff in order and go right. through the Get audit. audited, right, right. I mean, that's that's obviously part of it because every company has something different to the, to their whole process. Right. Well, 
Um, we have to adjust this because of this reason. Exactly. Right? And having been a financial analyst, like I, I get it. Like there's certain days where, you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't do that same thing in another space. Right. Uh, right just because right. the situation changes. So it was, it was cool to me to hear that uh, they actually looked at kind of the culture and the people at the top. That word kept coming up over and over again. Mm -hmm. Culture. Yeah. Like is the company that we're looking to buy a right fit culturally? Cult what, what, what do we mean when we say culture in terms of... Yeah, a so, business. So culture, you know, typically means like what when you walk into a building or an office, uh, you, you kind of get a sense of, of what they're about. Like it, it's how the, they interact with each other. It's like, do they use manners? Do they, you know, do they use simple things like that? It's literally just the person to person interactions. Like, Interesting. Okay. you know, does the does the CEO come out and talk to people freely? Does does mm. the are there a bunch of directors sitting there that are hammering down, you know? Right, right. I would, I would imagine that it has a lot to do with, like, okay, do you have, like, a core of, you know, like, long-tenured people? Exactly. Um, what are they like? How do they run the business? Like, you know, do they like hire? you know, for example, like, are they, do they like hiring the best people they can sure. possibly find, even if the, it might be better than you know, them? Or, I think you know. one of the, I think the best example of, of culture and trucking is, is, I think a lot of people have had experience with brokerage houses. Right. Uh, you walk into a lot of these places nowadays and it's a bunch of, you know, a lot of 20 somethings that right. recent grads to like kind of young professionals. You get places like Coyote, yeah. even, even like Convoy. You know, you walk in there and they're like in their shorts and, and t-shirts and they're on the phones. Like they're walking around, you've got like a cornhole board in the side and you know, right. the, it's, it's a very loose environment. They're, they're very comfortable where they are, but they're also like working really hard. I mean, on the phones. So right. Right. it's kind of like this culture of casual, but professional, like I'm here to work but I don't have to like, you know, it's not right. this overbearing sense of like somebody's going to come over and like beat me up for. Right. And so it's, it's kind of like, you know, like it, say you're a giant, you know, sort of buttoned up corporation, you know, that's been publicly traded for a long time and you run things in a certain way. Yeah. You might have, you know, you know, whatever, all these different kinds of policies. And then if you, it's basically like, can you make this acquisition of all these, you know, college kids who are, you know, working 60 hours a week or whatever and drinking beer um, can you fit that into your business? Can you measure it the way you're supposed to? Can you make it perform and grow the way it's supposed to without losing the secret sauce? Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of the, the a lot of what brokerage houses are built on is energy, and so if right. you, if you cut them off uh, from their energy source, like you're basically killing the company itself. And right. I, th I think that's one of the things that they were really trying to point to is like you cannot like absorb a, a company that's more traditional you know, into, a, or I'm sorry, you can't absorb this non-traditional kind of brokerage house into a more traditional environment and expect to get the exact same result. Right, right, right. You yeah. Know? And there are a couple of, you know, recent large acquisitions that I'm thinking of where there were, you know, like glaring cultural conflicts. Um, yeah. And that can happen between this, you know, the same style of business too. I mean, I yeah. think, uh, I mean, even between two trucking companies that appear to look the exact same on the surface. Right. You, you try to merge these two companies together and, you, and you've got this traditional, you know, company over here that, you know, they go, they go to lunch whenever they feel like. You know, it's just something as simple as that. Right. And this company over here operates on a strict schedule. You know, right, right. You, merging those two things can be catastrophic if right. uh, Interesting. Yeah, I mean, you don't manage Even like, like companies like 
like pe- people clock in and out at yeah. one and don't at another one. Exactly. It's like no, we just we just I, I clocked in. I take care of it. It's fine, and everybody's cool with it. And then the other one's like, well, no, you have. You were one minute after your your time. It, right, 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 right. <laughs> yeah. Now we have to be overtime. Blah, blah, blah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, so that and that really, we, you know, we started talking about culture. Now we're kind of getting to like sort of meshing uh, businesses and culture. And um, I think you know one of the questions was what is the most difficult part of the merger and acquisition process? And it's the answer was overwhelmingly integration. Yes, like integration. one of the one of the last parts of the puzzle. Well, um, I mean, we, so why why is it so hard? What are the different like models that you know companies do, and you know how do you how do we know if it's, if it's successful or not? So we are at, at a CFO conference, so it's it's largely accounting and finance people, right? Uh, so they're what they're As primarily to you know HR <laughs> yeah, or yeah, marketing right, right. Or, or who also have to deal with integration. Exactly, and 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 the level of integration they were really talking about is kind of what we uh, talked about earlier with accounting practices and things like that. Like when you're talking about integrating uh, data together, like that is a very, very difficult process. You could have two. What did you add and subtract to to this number before you put it in the report? Like how do we undo that or adjust it to what we want? And it's just like, you know, hundreds of and hundreds of thousands of tiny little adjustments, right? Exactly. And in accounting, you, you have to balance the books. Exactly. Yeah, so that one sounds ad- terrifying. It is. It's 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 actually a very, very trifling process. So, uh, say for instance that there was a, a credit that they had to take back in in June. Well, that affects like the books moving forward. So right. then there's this waterfall effect of you know rebalancing everything out, right, 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 and, but right, they can't right. take it in in June because that book's already closed. So now they have to go through and mm, put it, reassemble it uh, in in whatever order they want moving forward, which is a very tedious process, um, especially when you're talking about. I think another layer of integration they were talking about is just uh, KPIs, uh, the way that they viewed certain uh, operational numbers and stuff right, like that. Right, 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 and, and uh, like and like you know like what exactly the executive team is trying to achieve like what numbers do they care about exactly which ones are they trying to push forward and, and even companies in the exact same business have different models yeah they look and, they, and you know sort of you know butter their bread in different ways exactly and and they may measure it totally differently than you you know you would imagine that they would i mean it's hard to imagine that your miles per truck could be measured differently and, and but they could chop it up i mean there's yeah. all sorts of ways you can turn numbers and and but you have to come to an agreement to make sure they're all lined up. And then you could totally go all the way into the, uh, the IT, the infrastructure situation, where, right, which is right. a whole nother just. <laughs> right, and it's, it, you know, it's really interesting. The whole sort of problem of integration and like how much you're trying to integrate, you know, whether you're trying to find, you know, synergies of, of scale, like what exactly that looks like. It's, it's fascinating because, you know, we're even though we're in like an incredibly robust freight environment, you know, as uh, Costello said, you know, the second longest economic recovery in U.S. history. history. I think pr- probably 20th century. Um, like it's still difficult because of the driver shortage, and we can get into that too. Um, right. It's difficult for companies to like grow organically, right? I mean, you, you, you can you get it with price action, you get it with margins, but you know you can't. Just add trust. So that that's why we're talking about M and A. It's because that's that's one of the, the best ways to, it's, to grow it's in, this, in, in this environment is just buying other companies. Oh yeah, it's definitely the easiest way to grow. I think anybody that wants to grow fast. Well, it sounded kind of hard. 
from what what they were. I mean, oh, it's it's difficult. You, you no, get, it's you, insanely you, difficult. You, you, can get a, you can get a big number <laughs> yeah. quickly, yeah. But there's lots of risk. Exactly. So they the, you know, you go out and you purchase a company, and just like all the points we just hit on integration, culture, um, and depending on how leveraged you are. I mean, you know, right now, um, you know, we kept hearing that, you know, the cost of capital is is you know has been artificially low um, for a long time. Long time. Um, that's, you know, probably starting to change, you know, as the Fed, you know, gradually inches up the rates. But, but yeah, it's like you can, it, you know, especially if you're publicly traded, like you can, you know, your investor, your, your shareholders will like the numbers they see if you go on a buying spree, usually. Yeah, no, you're right. And, they, and it's very hard to kind of do that all at once without... Like, cause you know, you're, you're buying new trucks and, but you can't seed them fast enough. Right. Um, you, if you build up a, a network of, you know, you know, 10 to 15 more trucks, but you could go out and easily just go and buy like a company that had 20 and all of a sudden they're already set up in their own networks. You're not piecing together these lanes that, and these customers that you have to right. do to fill. And uh, all of a sudden your, your networks. revenue just got a, like a step change. Yeah. <laughs> um, that's one thing that we sort of, uh, you know, forgot to talk about with uh, Costello's presentation was on um, the driver shortage. He, you know, he was saying, and you know, this is a point that you know is hammered into consumers of transportation media on a daily basis. Um, you know, the ATA estimates there's a driver shortage of about fifty-one thousand drivers. Um, you know, in the you know for hire heavy duty truckload segment as opposed to you know the 10 million CDL holders you know, he, he kind of went through all that right. he's, talking, he's talking about 51,000 uh, driver shortage on a base of half a million of, so you know call it 10% right right um, and it's it's you know and he said you know if nothing changes that that, that could grow to 176,000 in you know whatever by 2030 or whatever it was which, which would be a, a, a massive uh, situation but um, how do we how do we know how many drivers I don't, were short? I don't like, think what, we like, I don't think we do. I think we can estimate all, all the time. But, but I think actually what's happened is is a lot of the I think it's really a large carrier driver shortage uh, is what we're talking about in right. the most in most cases. A retention uh, issues, and but, he was saying that you know they're making progress on that. It's I mean it, what, <laughs> it was like eighty or ninety percent um, you know turnover, which improved you know is, is somehow an improvement. Um, but you know, my question is: is like, what? How? What would the um, trucking economy look like if we didn't have a driver shortage at all? Like, is the goal to get you know truckload like rate per mile equilibrium? Because <laughs> right. do, do these companies actually want that? No. No. Right? Is is <laughs> the goal to stop driver wage inflation? I mean, in theory, yeah, they, they want to do that. But I mean, but it's not. If, that's not going to happen. I mean, I. I've been in I've been in the freight market where, you know, there was a driver shortage, but there was also like no rate inflation. So how is that even possible? You're telling me that the that the supply demand curve is out of whack, but the rates stayed the same for literally like five years until right. this last year when everything kind of blew up. Right, right, right. I mean, like 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 what what does it mean to say that in 2014 or 2015 we were short 50,000 drivers? Yeah, no. Ba- does basic, anyone think that? No, I think I think a lot of it is is kind of a piling on. Uh, the freight markets in general in the last year have really kind of gone haywire. Right. But if there was a true driver shortage for the last like five years, rates would have reflected that. You, yeah. you would have seen this like gradual increase in, in. But we haven't. They haven't been doing that until just recently. 
and, you know, t- to be fair to Bob Costello, he was also, he used this phrase, which I thought was brilliant. He's like, what we have is like basically free agency in trucking. Like that's really the issue. It's because drivers can, you know, you know, they're already like sort of, you know, moving all around the country, you know, doing their, you know, doing their own thing. Like what, like almost nothing is stopping them from jumping to another company. And they do that, whether it's, you know, they like the dispatchers better or, um, you know, they get home more or they get paid more, they get a new truck. Like, you know, there's so many things like, and it's almost like with the driver attention, I mean, we can bring that number, we can bring that turnover number down some, but even, even in like, I I was looking at this chart, even in like 2009, it was still 50%. Yeah. So, I mean, that's 2000, that has to be the very bottom you would think it ever get. Yeah. You would have thought that in, you know, these recessionary uh, economies. In in 2009, no one is just like quitting their job. No, they were like, and so, so 50% is as low as it can ever go. I mean, I mean, is, does that make sense to you? Uh, yeah, no, I think I think you're you're in the right direction. The uh, <laughs> thinking about it in terms of like the the broader economy and the supply and demand of drivers, like you would you would just expect that in the I guess the most recent bottom that we've had, it, it would be driver demand was just gone. Like, right. We right. didn't have a driver shortage in 2009, but right. they still were able to just walk out the door. And go down the street. So, right. driver percent. Yeah, fifty percent is horrific what for other, any other yeah, industry. What other industry has this kind of turnover? I mean, yeah, yeah. and it's because they know they're going to have a job tomorrow. They're they're almost like a lot of them are almost contract laborers. Yeah. You know, they, they kind of come and go in, in spaces yeah, yeah, yeah. when they and when the when they drive for for six months, take a couple months off, you know, start driving a truck again for somebody else. You know, just, exactly. So even in even in these risks periods of recession and the economy downturns, like drivers still feel like they have the leverage to walk right. out the door. And, right. and, and that's, that's weird to me. That's, like. Yeah, it's, <laughs> it's, it's fascinating. Yeah. Um, the other thing I think we should talk about, I mean, we sat through a lot of stuff um, about tax reform, um, various, sort, various sorts of um, state uh, vehicle sales taxes, exemptions with that, how yep. that works. You know, that was... You know, sort of. Um, yeah, you know, Trump it was, has. It was a fairly, I would say, <laughs> opaque right. and um, you know demoralizing uh, <laughs> presentation. Sometimes. But it reminds us why tax professionals exist, yeah. right? No, um, it was, it was there was one. There was <laughs> one stat that, intense. like, I, I thought was like pretty interesting. It's something that I don't think we've, we've talked about enough, um, and it's it's the um, depreciation write offs in the new tax reform. Can you sort of? Explain what that is, what that looks like, just you know, in, so, in simple terms. Yeah. So previously, you could only take eighty uh, percent of the depreciation, like in year one, uh, forward. So what that means basically is like you can only write off. You, you have up to eighty percent that you could write off, and and now so, you can write off a hundred percent of it. So you so you buy an asset, it slowly depreciates, and as that asset loses value, you get to. D- deduct that essentially from your your tax right yeah and what what the way this works in trucking is because trucking companies are notoriously cash poor entities so they need a way to manage their cash flow and accounting effectively so what they can do is kind of they're basically just deferring this expense until a later period of time so they can manage their existing like so they don't have to like pay for it all at once um because that'll cripple their books. Like if you go out, like you need to have some sort of like incentive to go out and make these larger purchases, these capital expenditure purchases that are very expensive. Right. <laughs> um, 
and, and to encourage that, you need to give them a reason to do it. Like, you can't punish them for wanting to grow. And so, you know, we've covered, you know, um, what, what's like ACT research, FTR research, people who talk about new truck orders, you know, charting that. You know, June was like a record month um, for new truck orders. So, uh, over 42,000 power units ordered. The OEMs have back backlogs that are lengthening, you know, eight, nine months. People are, you know, all of the trucks ordered for the rest of this year aren't going to be delivered until sometime next year. Yeah, I mean, that's insane to me because you're literally like making all these purchases and you don't know what the economy or the freight markets are going to be like next year. Right. You're basically banking that you're going to have this this shortage for right. the next 12 months. I mean, that's... Which it's, it's, a, it's a serious bet. Um, yeah. At the same time, our used trucking price indicators are you know, staying firm. So, yeah. I mean, that tells me that, okay, as these as these fleets are buying, at least ordering trucks, we, we know that, you know, the, the, the delivery pipeline for these manufacturers is operating, our, you know, at full capacity. But, like, basically, they're not, it's not the case that they are, there's a glut of used trucks hitting the market when their um, tractors get replaced. They're getting bought up, you know. Exactly. You're seeing, you're seeing a very... Uh, heightened cycle of, of uh, purchase. Right. But one of the, so one of the things that I don't think we, we talk about enough on the freight, you know, we talk about like uh, the fact that, okay, the, you know, uh, Trump lowered the corporate tax rate, cor- corp, you know, carriers have more cash to buy things, but we don't talk about like, okay, but they're also writing off all of the depreciation, you know, as soon as they buy. Um, and do you think that, like, like how much does that incentivize these buys? I, I think it definitely helps. Uh, the, the economy itself the economy itself is, is the main reason, obviously. The, these guys are making a lot of money over the last 12 months, uh, more so than they've been over the previous like 10 years in right. any given year, right. except for maybe 2014. But So it's kind of encouraged this spending uh, spree. So they're taking advantage of a bump in the economy. Now, what it means for the economy moving forward, I mean, I hope that they have some sort of insight that they know. I mean, obviously, looking at a lot of indicators, it looks like even it's by hard to tell. People have been nervous about the end of this yeah. cycle for like, you know, six months. Yeah, and what does that look like? I mean, what is the, what does the cycle end look like? Is it just a quick little hit like we had in 2016? We had a s- slow little uh, cooling period, right? And uh, so maybe maybe you just ride through a little period of cooling, and then we go right back to where we were. Right, uh, right. Nobody right. knows what that looks like yet, but the the trucking companies themselves are. Um, yeah, the trucking companies themselves are actually saying that hey, we're, we have faith in the economy Sorry, moving forward. John Larkin from yeah, people just stopped by, so we're just saying hi. Um, anyway. <laughs> I think like lunch is over. We haven't eaten. Yeah, um, we should eat. We ain't drinking beer because there's way too many numbers to <laughs> memorize. So um, let's wrap this up and uh, do some interviews a little bit later on. All right, let's do it. All right. Thanks for listening to this bonus episode of What the Truck at the McLeod CFO Conference in Nashville. Make sure you subscribe to What the Truck on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or Spotify, and rate and review us so that more listeners can find the show. And if you're interested in even more FreightWaves content on the finance and economics of freight, you don't want to miss MarketWaves 18, our conference at the Gaylord Texan Resort and Convention Center in Grapevine, Texas, this November. Visit MarketWaves18.com for more information about this event. Well, that'll do it for today, and we'll catch you next time on What the Truck.